Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hey, everybody. It is podcast time. The day of the Biden press conference, a day that will undoubtedly live in infamy, or maybe not. Who knows? We'll see. But today we are going to talk shootings, statehood, and the southern border. And yeah, it should be, should be interesting. I haven't um, I haven't done as much prep for this show as I normally would do, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Life has been a little bit hectic lately, so I've been trying to keep up with the news, but, you know, when you have a, a puppy that is needing to go to the bathroom three times throughout the night, it just kind of messes with your brain, and I have not had any tea yet today. I don't drink coffee. Blech. I drink tea, not hot tea. I mean, I'll drink hot tea, but I prefer iced tea. Unsweetened iced tea is where my caffeine fix is at. I know some people think that sounds weird, but from where I hail from in the great state, best state of Pennsylvania, that's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a normal part of life. So calm down. All you sweet tea drinkers is okay. (laughs) Where were we? We were someplace. We went someplace. Oh, when I went to Wisconsin to pick up the puppy, we went to this restaurant for, I think it was for lunch, and uh, I'd only gotten, I think it was two hours of sleep the night before, because we flew in late that night, and then we had like a two and a half hour drive, and anyway, yeah, and then, you know, we stayed up talking for a while, and then we had to get up and take the dogs for different appointments at different vets in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, so I slept for like two and a half hours, and I was just, I was, I was done. And so I asked, I asked if they had unsweet tea and the waitress looked at me like I was from another planet and that she had no idea what I was talking about. And she was like, um, and she was really nice about it, but she, she legit like didn't have a clue. I don't think she even realized that that's like a thing. She was like, um, well we have like, we have like tea. (laughs) And I I was like, does it have sugar? She's like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's a good sweetened tea. And I was like, okay, well, if you have any unsweet tea, I would love that. But, uh, but that would be, you know, otherwise don't, or I just, or I think I just said water if they didn't have that. Because I don't, uh, I I try to avoid the sugar in the drinks. Because if I'm going to have sugar, I want to eat the sugar. I don't want to drink the sugar. That's, to me, that is a waste of my sugar. I would much rather eat ice cream and get my sugar intake that way. All right, so. So I leave the tea. She's like, okay, I'll check and see if we can do that. And I was like, all right, yeah, just take the tea. Don't put sugar in it. And, you know, we're good. Um, so I went to go wash my hands. I come back to the table, and there is a lemon-flavored Snapple in a bottle at my spot. And I was like, what What happened? What? <laughs> what just happened? I have no idea why I'm telling you this story. Oh, Yes. See again, the brain not not working. That's that's why I was telling you a story because I haven't had the tea yet today. 
And some of you are going to listen to this on the radio in a few days and be like, this is old news. Well, yeah, that's why you should just download the podcast and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. But it's not that old. The only thing we'll really miss is uh, Biden's press conference, if that has any humdingers in it. But what I think my favorite thing about this upcoming press conference is that the Washington Post has warned reporters to avoid drama. This is fantastic. It's so great. Oh, my goodness. Oh. So, um, Washington Post columnist, column, column, columnist, columnist, column, you know the word, Margaret Sullivan, and opinion writer Jennifer Rubin Wrote a piece in the Washington Post that says, Biden's first news conference is a test for him, but it's a bigger test for White House reporters. Mm-hmm. These writers are concerned that the press might be showboating and worry about not looking as tough on Biden as they were on President Trump. Their article says this, For the White House press corps, there's a temptation to play to the crowd. Every TV reporter has to be thinking about the 10-second clip of their question that might be used on Thursday's newscast, establishing them as the star du jour who bravely challenged the president. And they also pointed out that, uh, that the media has unfairly hounded White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Rubin wrote, every president must be covered with a critical eye, but the constant bias for drama leads to misleading coverage when the Oval Office... <laughs> Sorry, I can't even read it. I can't even read it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay, I can do this. I can do this. Every president, she wrote, must be covered with a critical eye, but the constant bias for drama... <laughs> Sorry. What's what's what what I can't get through with this is that this is one of the most drama-driven journalists of the Trump administration who's like who's saying this. Okay. All right, I'm going to get through this time. <clears throat> this is what she said. <laughs> Every president must be covered with a critical eye, but the constant bias for drama leads to misleading coverage when the oval office inhabitant is not drama prone. She's like, look, guys, look, here's the thing. Trump was all about drama. And so it was OK for us to be to be to be uh, 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 biased and covered with the, and, and to be critical of him. But with there's no drama. There's no drama with the Oval Office now. So stop trying to get your moment of fame and be nice to the man. That's basically what their article is. It's unbelievable. Both writers have a problem with the border crisis being called a crisis and suggest that journalists are bowing to conservative pressure. And we'll talk more about what's going on at the southern border in a little bit. The, but they <laughs> Sullivan wrote, The burgeoning number of migrants, including thousands of children, is a legitimate concern and a valid story. But much of the news media seems to be using it to show that they intend to present Biden in just as critical a light as they often did Trump, regardless of whether that's deserved. Uh Uh-huh. Neither of these individuals has ever written a piece even remotely unbiased or not drama seeking about president former president trump but they are very concerned 
that, that members of the media are acting like they intend to present Biden in just as critical a light as they often did Trump. How dare they when we say it's not deserved? <laughs> it's almost like not being biased will get you in trouble with the mainstream media. And what I what I like best of all is that Rubin is often held up by many of on the left as this unbiased bastion of truth and facts and journalism. <laughs> Not quite, people. Not quite. But so Biden will have a press conference today. Will undoubtedly uh, cover the items that we are talking about in uh, in our in our. In our program today, I'm sure he will probably also be asked about unity. He'll be asked about uh, the Supreme Court, if he intends to to do anything as far as the quote-unquote packing the court. He might be asked about, well, I'm sure he'll be asked about assault weapons, what he intends to do there, because he had mentioned things about an executive order. Um, he may or may not be asked about Hunter Biden. Um, possibly about his health. Why there was a delay. Two months. This is a record. No president has ever waited two months, 65 days into his administration for an actual press conference. So we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with this. But anyway, we are going to move into the actual topics for today. Now that we've had a 10 minute introduction of all kinds of randomness. First off, with our hearts going out to the people in Boulder, Colorado, I don't know a lot about many of the victims, but from everything that I have seen shared about the officer um, that was that was killed in that murdered in that uh, in that tragedy, um, what a what an example, what a guy, what a dad. And my heart is just broken for all of the families involved there. And I think he's a, he's a good representation of those, um, of those families and what has been lost in our country this week. It is a tragic, tragic loss of life. And then, of course, prior to that, um, last week we had the incident, um, Atlanta with the massage parlor and again just absolute tragedy there and as always happens when something like this occurs in our country and it has been occurring far too often our our nation kind of recoils and we're, we're Americans so we want to fix it because we, we we that's what we do we're Americans and we fix things we make things better Americans are the best, and we don't do this sort of thing. And so there's this, there's always this backlash of, of horror, as there should be. But oftentimes what we see is one side saying, the problem is the guns, let's get rid of the guns, and then everything will be fine and dandy. And the other side saying, the problem is not the guns, the problem is the individuals. And it's kind of like, ne'er the two shall meet. I think at some point the two are going to have to meet. We have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in this country, which is completely foreign to the rest of the world. I don't believe that that right should be infringed. It is a constitutional right. 
That said, I think that we can look at our gun laws and our gun legislation and what things are done. We can look at what requirements there are for firearms. And I, I haven't been able to figure this out yet, but based on at least the, the boulder shooter's um, history, I'm not sure if he had legally acquired this firearm, if it was in his name, how he was able to do so. Because his background, if this gun was legally acquired, or this, this weapons, um, I, I don't know how that happened. So if it was legally obtained, then we have a problem there. Because the assault record in his past should have stopped him from being able to obtain a weapon had he gone through the channels that are already in place. So I'm not sure what it, I, 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 like I said, I haven't had a chance to get into this as much as I would have liked to. But what I do know is that he should not have been able to obtain a gun based on his background. And which, which begs the question of then, how did he get these weapons? Um, because his sister had seen him with another firearm and confiscated it apparently prior to the shooting. Uh, he was known to be disturbed. He was known by the FBI uh, because of his relationship to someone else. And that relationship has yet to be expounded upon, but it's highly disconcerting. Because this is not the first time that we've come into a tragic situation afterwards to find out that the FBI was aware of this individual, and yet then they would go on to commit this unspeakable murder. And what is, what is one of the problems that we have as a society is that in refusing generally to acknowledge that we have a sin problem as humans, we then have to try and rationalize and justify and explain away what's going on with generally faulty logic. So what you saw with the Atlanta shooting was this, this reaction to white men, and granted it is white men who have perpetrated the, uh, the, the, the mass shootings that we have seen throughout our country. That's generally across the board, that is happening. That is a problem. But what we saw with what happened in Atlanta was it was, it was well, this is a hate crime against Asians, and oh, by the way, also, Southern Baptists are bad because he has this perversion because he's a Southern Baptist and because Southern Baptists and Southern Baptists and Southern Baptists and he's a white man and Southern Baptists. And this is what was pushed, 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 pushed. This narrative of uh, it's a hate crime against Asian by a white man who's a Southern Baptist. Right? Everybody knows this about this guy. But when it comes to the boulder shooter... We're, we're, our, our narrative is much more crafted. It was all about him being a white man until we found out uh, that he's actually from Syria. And oh, by the way, we're, this absolutely has nothing to do with him being a Muslim. In fact, he was bullied for being a Muslim. And that probably caused many of the, the problems in his life. And this is just a mental health issue because he was, he was mistreated throughout his life because he was an immigrant and a Muslim. And his, his religion and his faith doesn't matter. This is mental health. So in one instance, we have a, a narrative being pushed that is 
is this is not about mental health. This is about a hate crime. This is about a, this is about white men and, and evil Southern Baptists. And then on the other hand, we we see someone is like, well, this is because he has mental health issues, and it's because he was bullied because he's an immigrant because he's a Muslim and it's a mental health issue. Maybe could it be that there was mental health at play in both situations? And I've seen I've seen people on the right over. I don't want to say it's not overreacting is the wrong word because I don't think you can overreact uh, in a situation with a tragedy like this. I mean, obviously you can overreact. That's not what I'm, I'm, um, it's easy, I should say, to jump into theories and conspiracies. You know, people were pushing on Twitter. Oh, well, he wanted to actually shoot up the Trump rally that was canceled because of COVID, but then he wasn't able to do that, so he had to settle for the supermarket. It's like, where, where are you guys getting this stuff? If you take sin out of the equation, it is so easy to run down these rabbit holes of conspiracies. Now, I, that's not to say, this, as far as I know, as of this morning, we haven't been given a motive yet for the Boulder shooter. And it may come out that his religious affiliation did motivate this. It may come out that he had ties to other ins, uh, issues in Syria. The FBI was already investigating him for ties to something... And I think it would behoove us, as we are crafting a narrative on this issue, to understand what that something the FBI was looking into is. That might give us a little bit of a clue. But again, as far as I know, as of the time of the recording of this podcast, we don't have that information. But there's a whole lot of speculation going on. And accusation going on. Just as there was with the, the, the shooter in the Atlanta situation. But the narrative is being presented completely differently to fit the storyline that the media wants to push at you. And and we could go into this a lot further. We could go into the hate crimes, and I have prepared about that, but I, I think I just want to leave it there. I want to leave it at these. Both of these situations were absolutely tragic. Uh, both sides, I think, are reactive without giving any sort of credence or possibility to a viewpoint that wouldn't align with their uh, predetermined opinion, if you will. And I think as a culture, we need to get much better at not jumping to conclusions. And we need to understand that as long as humanity exists... I'm not getting into the gun control issue today. I've done whole entire podcasts about gun control. You can go back and listen to those and get my opinion on that if you want. But I, I will say that it doesn't matter if you take away the gun if you still have evil in the hearts of men. And it very particularly does not matter if you take away the gun from the common man if there is evil in the hearts of their rulers. And all throughout history, we see the disarming of people before grave national and international tragedies in this world. And I... I the last thing I'll say on this is that statistically, before you go trying to push a narrative about hate crimes, 
and, and I'm not going to get into this. I'll let you do the research on it yourself. But whether, whether you're talking hate crimes against Asians, hate crimes against any group of people, and who is the most likely to perpetrate them, yes, mass shootings have been uh, perpetrated most often by white males. That's just, that's just factual. The, the mass shootings that we know of, that, are, that we think of when we think of mass shootings, those have been perpetrated by white males. Now, you know that statistic. Before you go making generalizations and assumptions on those statistics, I think it would behoove you to go look at the statistics for hate crimes in general. And if you, if you want... If you want to go down the trail of generalizing hate crimes based on the racial profile of, of those who commit them, you may be very surprised to find that that narrative looks rather different than what you hear in the mainstream media. And again, I, due to time constraints, I'm not going to go there, but... You should, you should look at it. All right, so moving on to statehood. Statehood, that would be, of course, for Washington, D.C. Now, you can read about, and this was actually really interesting because I think sometimes when we are, um, when we are of one political persuasion, we, we tend to know the talking points of our side very well without even considering the argument of those on the other side. And I understand why DC, why I think that's not a good thing to make that a state. I have studied why our founding fathers did not want Washington DC to be a state. I get that. But I can honestly say, I never went to say, okay, so what are the people of DC saying as their reasoning for why they say they should be a state? I don't, I mean, you know, I, and, and I forget I think probably because I'm not there, that people live in Washington, D.C. It's not just the seat of government. People are living in this jurisdiction, but they get no votes in Congress. They get no representation there. And frankly, <laughs> that's largely, I think, because our founding fathers did not intend for people to live in this swamp, because it was literally swampland that nobody, n n no state, like there were different states that were like, yeah, that's ours, that's ours, that's kind of ours, but it's swamp, and nobody was really attached to it, and that's how it became Washington, D.C., because it was literally a swamp that all of the states surrounding it were totally okay with surrendering to make it the seat of government. But uh, so D.C. residents are paying federal taxes. They serve in the military, um, but they do not have their own budget. They do not have their own laws. They have no votes in Congress itself. So, um, the, and, and D.C. is arguing that this is racial inequality because it's a historically black city um, and that uh, that... This is, this is disenfranch disenfranchisement of, of black Americans because if it were admitted to the Union, the district would be the only plurality black state in the country. Um, Washington, D.C. has 712,000 residents, which is actually more than Vermont or Wyoming, comparable with states like Delaware or Alaska. 
D.C. residents also pay the highest per capita federal income taxes in the United States. But, again, have no say over how those tax dollars are spent. Now, when it comes to the Constitution, the Constitution sets a maximum size, not exceeding 10 miles square, for the federal district that is the seat of the government of the United States. The question becomes, does Congress have the authority to redefine the borders of the federal district? And the answer would seem to be yes, because Congress did that in 1846, when the portion west of the Potomac was returned to Virginia. So what Washington, D.C. is proposing is that they carve out a two-mile radius, which would be the National Capital Service Area, including the federal buildings like the White House, Capitol, Supreme Court, and National Mall. That would become the seat of the federal government as defined in the Constitution, and the surrounding area, which is currently known as Washington, D.C., would become a state. So those are the arguments for statehood. And this is getting real play. This is why we're covering it, because this is getting real play in... Uh, in Congress right now, and this is something that if Democrats get this through, it would be very difficult for Republicans to control uh, uh, con Congress uh, in the future. But the Founding Fathers, so here's his argument against, um, there's a great article about this by Inez Stepman in the in the Federalist. She actually wrote this in 2017, but it's just as true today uh, as it was then. She said, The founders intended for the capital of the newly created United States to be a neutral ground for co-equal sovereign states to come together to transact the nation's business. At the time, states' governments were much more powerful than they are today, so a worry about placing the capital within a state was that the state might exercise unfair influence or pressure on the federal government. Today, with the expanded powers of the federal government via via the states, the inappropriate influence has the potential to go both ways. Granting D.C. statehood would put the other 50 states, perhaps minus Virginia and Maryland, at a distinct disadvantage when looking to influence federal policy, grants, and regulation. You might say, well, that would never happen because there's no corruption in government. Have you ever researched anything about our government? <laughs> In an era of instant communication, it's easy to forget how important geographic placement of a capital can be. But capital placement histories, both state and federal, belie that assumption. It's hard to find a state capital museum, get this now, that doesn't have a tale of influence peddling or outright bribery that resulted in the capital's placement. It beggars the imagination that a D.C. resident with immediate personal access to the quarters of Congress doesn't already have more opportunity to influence the decisions made within than someone pulling the lever to vote in Wyoming. Like, it just makes sense. The founders were aware of the dangers of capital placement, which is why James Madison warned in the Federalist No. 43 of bringing imputation of awe or influence onto the new national government by placing it within a state. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson considered the location of the future capital of the United States so important that he infamously traded away his opposition to Hamilton's proposal that the federal government assume state debts in order to assure the capital moved from New York to Jefferson's native Virginia. Okay? That, and you may, may know that from if you did any research about Hamilton and Jefferson following the musical. But this was, this was not like some insignificant thing to our founding fathers, right? It, the whole reason things didn't continue in Philadelphia, which would have been a much better location for our capital, it's much prettier. Actually, the, the cherry blossoms are pretty cool in Washington, D.C., but, you know. We went from, from Philly to New York, to, and the, the swampland was chosen because of the swamplandishness of it. Okay, 
It wasn't supposed to be a place of power and, and some thriving metropolis. It was supposed to be, we go there to conduct our nation's business, and then we leave and go back to our home. All right, so then there's the issue, again, uh, of, of does Congress have the power? And this is the argument against if Congress has the power. Uh, the district's current status is spelled out in the Constitution itself, so it should take a constitutional amendment to change it. Even legal scholars who consider the current situation in D.C. to be a glaring denial of basic rights admit that it would take a constitutional amendment to change the special status of the district, noting that for Congress to have this conversion to statehood power would undermine the nature of the compromises that resulted in our current bicameral system of representation. What would then stop Congress from using the district clause to carve out another area as the new federal district and therefore create any number of new voting states in succession? Construing Congress's powers this broadly would give the federal government an enormous advantage over the states unintended by the framers, a fact previous proponents of D.C. statehood recognized. So what she's essentially saying is Congress could just start carving out other states elsewhere using this same district clause and creating other federal districts, then bestowing on them the rights of statehood and completely reframing our system of government. Mm -hmm. She continues, It's no accident that the four richest counties in the country are all in the D.C. metro area, and much of the real business of the nation's capital is transacted transacted in district bars and restaurants. While many D.C. residents are disconnected from the industry surrounding the federal government, they still benefit from their proximity to Capitol Hill. D.C. public schools top the nation in per-pupil spending, totaling almost $30,000 per student, and a 2005 tabulation found that D.C. receives more than twice as much federal money overall per capita as the next highest state. And this is prior. <laughs> this is without them holding any kind of statehood. The district is unique in that it is ultimately only a few miles away from two states where residents can seek and obtain full voting rights if having the ability to vote for Congress critters, <laughs> I love that she uses that word, is important enough to them. While it may be a burden for some to move five miles away across the Potomac, it usually doesn't necessitate changing jobs or leaving family behind. Although it's special, non-voting status seems discordant with the modern state of politics. There are good reasons why the Constitution lays out special rules for the federal district, and we would do well to remember the cautionary words of the founders and accept the unique constitutional deal they wisely laid out for the District of Columbia. Uh, that's Inez Stepman, senior contributor for the Federalist and senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. So, there you go. That is what's happening with statehood. Uh, this is one of the things that Democrats are pushing, pushing, pushing right now uh, alongside their H.R. 1, the For the People Act. For the People Act, by the way, is, is just terrible, um, which would just remove state voter ID laws. Uh, you could just sign a, p a form saying that you are who you say you are which I can't even begin to fathom how terrible that would be. Uh, absentee ballots would no longer require any witness signature or notarization requirement. Um, 
the it restricts the ability of states to take steps to maintain accuracy of voter rolls, like comparing their lists with those of other states or using the U.S. Postal Service's national change of address system to find people who have moved, which will just cause even greater problems with inaccurate uh, voter registration rolls. Uh, it takes away your ability to decide whether you want to register to vote and you are automatically uh, registered at the DMV or welfare offices. That's going to lead to multiple registrations in the same state, multiple states, and the registration of aliens and other ineligible ineligible individuals. Uh, states will be forced into online registration, which of course we all know that nothing can be hacked and that cybercrime is definitely not a problem, so what could possibly go wrong there? Then you have regulatory restrictions on political speech and activity, um, including online policy-related speech, whether that's from candidates or citizens, civics groups, unions, corporations, 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 and nonprofit organizations. Um, so, so organizations like the NRA or Citizens for Life um, will 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 uh, have donor disclosure requirements that will be. Um, well, they'd be similar to what the what the state governments try to impose on civil rights organizations in the 50s, which the Supreme Court then deemed as unconstitutional. The IRS would be authorized to investigate and consider the political and policy positions of nonprofit organizations when they apply for tax-exempt status. So that would legally empower the political party in control of the White House to use the IRS to go after anyone criticizing them or their policies, and it would set up a public funding program for candidates running for Congress. And taxpayers would be forced to subsidize the political campaigns of individuals with whom we would vehemently disagree and would never vote for in years. And this is literally a bill uh, that that Democrats have put in place um, to to never lose again. Uh, that's that's what it is. Mitch McConnell said of this bill, this is clearly an effort by one party to rewrite the rules of our political system, but even more immediately it would create an implementation nightmare that would drown state and local officials. And I don't even have time today to get into... Um, Senate Republicans are saying that Democrats are going to use the, this voting bill to kill the filibuster. And you can go and you can watch uh, Ben Sass did a phenomenal presentation on the floor of the Senate where all he did was go through Biden's very words on the filibuster. And, uh, and just it was incredible. I shared that on my Twitter feed last night. You can go read it there at the Friddle uh, if you would like. Um, um, Oh, wow. Okay, we are way further time-wise into this than I realized. So uh, we're going to wrap things up really quick here with the southern border. I'm sure this will be addressed in some manner during the president's press conference today. I thought it was highly inappropriate than when asked about if she was going to visit the border that our vice president uh, laughed and said, not today. I've been there before. I'm sure I'll go back there eventually or something or, or someday or something like that. I was like, that is so... Like, so inappropriate, um, one, to laugh about it, and secondly, um, to, like, just shrug it off like, I've been there, I'll, I'll go back sometime. There's a, there's a crisis at the border. Like, the crisis has been exponentially worse since Biden took office because he has put in 
many executive orders that reverse Trump administration policies that have led to the worsening of this situation. So uh, he halted the construction of the border wall on January 20th. On January 20th, he undid Trump's expansion of immigration enforcement. Um, He reversed the Trump administration's restrictions on U.S. entry for passport holders from seven Muslim-majority countries. Uh, He fortified DACA uh, after Trump's efforts there. Um, all on January the 20th. He then also proceeded to, um, hang on, I gotta find it. There's so many, uh, uh, executive orders that I gotta go through them. He revoked Trump's order on February 2nd, uh, separating families at the border, and yet we continue to see families separated at the border. Um, he is, uh, he, Issued an executive order for organizations to provide protection to asylum seekers and ensured Central American asylum seekers have legal access to the United States. He rescinded Trump administration policies and guidelines and initiated a review of policies that have effectively closed the U.S. border to asylum seekers. He also, on February 2nd, rescinded Trump's memo requiring immigrants to repay the government if they receive public benefits. Um... He expanded on February the 4th the United States Refugee Admissions Program and directed relevant agencies to ensure LGBTQI refugees and asylum seekers have equal access to protections. Um, He revoked a Trump-era proclamation that limited legal immigration during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now, not only are we not having that happen, but we have migrants coming into this country illegally, not being tested for COVID, and being released into the country uh, either not being tested or being tested and being found positive and still being released in the country. Like, you can't go... You you stay in your house if you have COVID, but we're going to let illegals into the country and then... Uh, they will just let them go wander about. Like, it's uh, it's unbelievable. There are at least 13,000 children being held on the U.S. border right now, and yes, that is a humanitarian crisis. Asked in a recent press briefing whether there was an illegal immigration crisis brewing, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas' answer was unequivocally no, and House White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has refused to label the developments on the southern border as a crisis. But CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell began her program recently with the breaking news that at least 13,000 children are being held in U.S. custody on the southern border for an average of 120 hours. That is significantly longer than the 72 hours that is currently uh, allowed by law. She said in her program, we're going to begin with a humanitarian crisis on the southern border that is growing larger and more dire. The Secretary of Homeland Security admitting today that so many people are now crossing the border. His department is on pace to stop more migrants than in the past 20 years, and the Biden administration is running out of room to house them. And then, of course, we had the issue of uh, the... They're running out of room to house them, so now they're housing illegals in hotels. Meanwhile, we have our troops sleeping in hallways and parking garages in our nation's capital unnecessarily so. This is it's unreal. Children or unaccompanied alien children, which are referred to as UACs, include illegal immigrants ages 0 to 17 who make the journey north without their parents and are one of the main drivers of the current border crisis. So when we were seeing images in the Trump era of all these children at the border, uh, it was it was always pushed in our faces as Trump is ripping families apart. But in reality, what was happening then, that w- 
there was fam family separation. More often than not, there was separation of an adult who was not related from a child who was not related to that adult who was bringing them across the border. But So we had that situation. Then we also had unaccompanied uh, minors. And that is just being extirpated in this situation that we are seeing on the border right now. Um, uh, additionally... U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered 313, 565,000 single adults along the southern border in the first two months of this year, which is a 188% increase from January and February of 2020 when 108,846 were encountered. The number of children crossing our border illegally is particularly harrowing, with the number of unaccompanied children crossing in February reaching the highest in our nation's history, according to the Washington Examiner. Now, Joe Biden, Jen Psaki, they're trying to push this off as saying this is tr a Trump problem. Trump did this. This is a Trump problem. This is a Trump problem. This is a Trump problem. This is not a Trump problem when under President Trump, if you look at the actual numbers and statistics, the increases since Joe Biden has taken office and the effects of him undoing uh, what has been done or what Trump had done is causing <laughs> this issue. The unaccompanied alien children, the U.S. Border Patrol encountered 29,000 unaccompanied alien children along the southern border in January and February 2021 alone, 92% increase compared to the first two months of 2020 when there were 15,122 unaccompanied uh, alien children. So you cannot say that this is a Trump crisis. No, this crisis has proven to have become exponentially worse since the current administration has taken over, which, by the way, we're supposed to refer to it now as the Biden-Harris administration. This, that's a very interesting thing that the, the White House has put forward, and it kind of makes you wonder if Biden is getting pushed to the background because no, no other time, or maybe it's because she's a woman and so she must not be not named, but it was not the Bush-Cheney administration, it was the Bush administration. It was not the Clinton-Gore administration, it was the Clinton administration. It was not the Carter Whoever his vice president was, administration, it was the Carter administration. It was not the, 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 the Obama-Biden administration. It was the Obama administration. But now it's, now it's the Biden-Harris administration. We have a hyphen in there. It's like some very woke children got married and couldn't decide whose last name they were going to use, so they used both. Um... And I'm not saying that to be culturally inappropriate. I know there are cultures that keep both. I mean, like, if I were to get married and make my name Heath something. I think, and this is what I would do, my, my middle name really does not have significant meaning. So if you're going to change your name anyway, I would just make Heath my middle name. Because Heath has meaning. Anyhow, that's what's happening at our southern border I don't know what the answer is. I know that it is a crisis. I know that the photos that have been coming out, I know that there has been uh, denial of access to the area. We have Democrat mayors along the border saying, you know what, this is, we are in a state of emergency. Please, please, please help us. And that this is just, it's unbelievable what has been going on uh, in our country along our southern border. And the media has been denied access to being able to see what is happening there, to report what is happening there. And I'm sure that this is going to come up in the president's 
uh, press conference to date. Also, uh, if you want to look at what uh, what Biden is doing by way of executive orders, his last one uh, was on March the 8th. He issued several executive orders following executive orders on or an executive order on March 7th. Um, CNN politics has a whole list. So there's executive actions, list of executive actions Biden has signed so far. And you can go through and you can see and they break them down as to how many executive actions there are. Um, Biden has in the first, uh, through the first year in office to this point, Biden has signed 44, Trump was at 27, Obama was at 28, and Bush was at 7. So he has far surpassed uh, his predecessors. And they break down, you know, how many executive orders they have done, how many reversals. Um, So Biden has reversed nine immigration policies that Trump had put in place via executive action or memo. And then he has taken two executive actions of his own. When it comes to the economy, he has reversed three uh, Trump economic policies via executive action and has instituted four of his own. And you can see they just do like a simple breakdown and then they have summaries of each executive action. It's really very helpful uh, if that is of interest to you. All right. We have taken entirely too much time today. Thanks for those of you who have stuck with us throughout the entirety. Hope today's program uh, was a help to you as you wade through the news of the day. I'm Crystal Heath. You've been listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio, or perhaps via our podcast, The Frittle Show, on iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast service. Thanks so much for being with us. If you have topics, questions, concerns, you can go find me on Facebook or the Twitter, or the Twitter, at The Frittle, and send me your thoughts, comments, questions there, and we will get into those next week as well. Have a great week. Thanks again for being with us. God bless.